There are a lot of people who lie and get away with it. Over the North Atlantic, toward the east coast of the United States. President Kennedy died. This week on Inside Jobs, Brian Jean and Lee investigate the CIA coup in Iran. In 1953, the Prime Minister of Iran was ousted in a coup that had the full backing of a domestic monarchist movement. Subsequent sweetheart oil export deals with Western powers were merely coincidence. Or were they? Joining me to investigate the 1953 coup d'etat in Iran are civilian investigator Eugene Tournament of Shadows O'Neill. Shalom! And conspiracy expert Lee Golden. Allah Admiral Akbar. <laughs> I'm historian Brian Lane. Welcome to Inside Jobs. Whose greeting was more offensive, mine or Lee's? Well, I don't know. You said shalom, <laughs> which is I think it's salam. He- yeah, it's right? the he- that's the Hebrew form of the Greek. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was <laughs> I was being intentionally antagonistic. The only uh, reason I know that it's salam is there was a uh, Indiana Jones video game in the early '90s in which you would have to talk to some Arab guys and they would they would say salam to you. Yeah, it means peace. Okay, so any Iranian nationals listening to this know. Their history is in good hands. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, especially considering that they speak Arabic in Persia. They, d- they don't. I meant, I meant Iranian uh, uh, immigrants. Um, in addition to welcoming the listener to Inside Jobs, I would also like to welcome Lee back to Inside Jobs. If you yeah. recall last episode, he was... You on... recall he's a host on this show, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was on assignment, actually. Yes, you were on assignment. In in a brief couple minutes, how was your adventure? Uh, it was uh, excellent. Uh, the The weather was actually surprisingly good, but I still got to kick around some snow. So uh, you know, during the day, I went and uh, hung out at. Uh, the uh, JFK Presidential Library and uh, took some footage there and uh, checked out some of the exhibits. And then there was, yeah. <laughs> and then at night uh, hung out at uh, JFK's uh, Chowder House and like sat. They wouldn't let me sit in JFK's booth because it was like a five top and there was only uh, two of us. But um, I became friends with the people sitting in JFK's booth and uh, and I got to sit in there eventually. Oh, man, so you got to talk to them? I did. I got to talk to uh, JFK's ghosts and <laughs> um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome. In the episode, in the last episode, I explained that you were there because the JFK Museum had an exhibit on the assassination. Yeah, correct. And what was that like? What, uh, what was, was their conclusion? Their conclusion was um, that they should only put one room in the entire uh, museum dedicated to this and call it an exhibit. Um, they had like the, they had the boots and the saddle from the riderless carriage that, uh, you know, accompanied JFK's casket, um, in the, uh, the march, you know, down Pennsylvania Avenue for his, um, 
his funeral that that Monday after the assassination. Did you reenact um, John John's salute? <laughs> I did. I was wearing like a little dress. Yeah, you were wearing a tiny dress. dress. Um, but the yeah, most why is he wearing a dress? I don't know. They, it's really weird. I don't know because you know JFK Jr. was such a ladies' man. He was so hot that he could just like pull shit like that and like still be a sex symbol. You know, even as a little boy. But the most interesting thing they had was the letter that uh, Jackie had sent to um, Officer Tippett's wife. Mm, basically, oh, it basically said, "Sorry, no one gives a shit about your husband because he wasn't as famous as mine." Wow, that's pretty interesting. Jefferson yeah, it's a, it's a... Davis Tippett. Yes. Wow. Well, um, I am glad to have you back, but I also want to uh, say thanks again to Mark Thomas for for filling in uh, uh, for you last week or last time and really helping out with our Archduke Franz Ferdinand episode, which uh, I thought went pretty pretty well. Uh, although ha- listening to it, I was I couldn't help but uh, cringe every time I like mispronounced a word or <laughs> like screwed up a date. Which happened oh, fairly frequently. Race yourself. <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> I did enjoy. Yeah, just like three white guys just like trying to pronounce uh, Kermit. Uh, all these <laughs> Kermit D. Roosevelt. Um, but yeah, I listened to uh, I listened to um, most of that episode while uh, going on a, a jog. So thank you. I managed to get my jog under eight minutes again. So uh, I, I attribute that to you guys. Um, that episode but, uh, was over eight minutes long, so you, <laughs> yes. just, you listen to most of the beginning, and you're like, ah, I got my fill. Yeah, I ran a couple miles, okay. So today we are talking about the overthrow of the democratically elected government in Iran in 1953, and this episode came about um, at, the, at the suggestion of Eugene. Now, you have sort of led us through two episodes that were in the far distant past. Um, That is the uh, historicity of Jesus Christ and the historicity of the book of Exodus. Moshe. Now we're operating in the less far distant past, but no less mythical distant past. Yeah, it's interesting that actually, even though this is still, this event is still within living memory of the current generation of Americans, most Americans are more familiar with the history of Jesus and Moses than they are with the history of the uh, Iranian uh, uh, coup. So, And we uh, do say that in a post-Argo world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, but Gene, and, what, what drew you to this topic uh, just to start off? Well, this is the first uh, coup by our, uh, at the time, young CIA. And it, it's what really put the CIA on the map, I think. Mm-hmm. The, the map of non-acknowledged <laughs> yeah. foreign activities. Uh, on a lot of maps, yeah. probably. I guess uh, the map of American uh, penetration, illegal penetration into foreign governments, uh, um, suppression of power. Um, Encroaching communism. Yes. Yeah, that map from the scene in the movie W, where uh, fucking President Dreyfus explains why we need to invade Iran. This story doesn't start in 1953. Uh, as it's tight. Where does it start, Brian? It does not start in 1933 either. It starts on January 20, January 30th, 1933, in a little metropolis known as Berlin. 
when Hitler you're listening to inside jobs <laughs> brought to you by brian's obsession with nazis we'll be right back no this this story actually has a has a fairly interesting uh history because as many people know the uh the british east india company took over a large part of india and then subsequently um England assumed control of India as part of its empire. Queen Victoria was named the Empress of uh, India. But in all of their financial interest in India was, you know, had to do with the spice trade as well as certain dyes and clothing. And this was considered to be the crown in the imperial uh, or the jewel in the imperial crown of, of England. Yeah, you might, have heard about this. <laughs> you might have heard about this uh, through uh, waiting in line uh, on the Jungle Cruise at Disneyland. <laughs> um, Were spices and dyes really just that valuable back then? Yeah. The, the spice girls are actually more valuable to the British Empire at this point than those spices. Yeah. Is there... in, uh, so the British East India Company started trading in 1600. And the profit margin on some of their earliest uh, uh, excursions to India was sometimes like 600%. Um, $600. <laughs> yeah, but this was – Yeah, this was a long time ago. So this is like a billion dollars. Um, yeah. No, uh, certainly spices were, were worth a lot of money. But then as uh, English control of India became – you know, more widespread and more sort of iron fisted. They were producing just, they were, it was just shitting money out, out into the empire, especially uh, after they lost the American colonies where, you know, so much of their cotton was coming from and, and uh, they were getting all sorts of other uh... King George. We are literally shitting money. <laughs> um, Tally ho. But, uh, but so in protecting the huge investment in India, England had to sort of fight all of these these int- wars of intrigue with France first, but then later Russia, all throughout Central Asia, and especially in Iran. Um, the Ottoman Empire had... Iran. I- Iran. Uh, the Ottoman Empire had sort of cut off the pa- the overland pass to India, which necessitated the whole going around the Cape, uh, the Cape of Good Hope, Hope and uh, by by sea to get to India. And no and, one could find the Northwest Passage. And no one could find the Northwest Passage because it turned out to not not be real back then because there wasn't global warming. Um, <laughs> now we have many Northwest Passages. <laughs> um, Man, that's my favorite Hitchcock movie. North yes. by Northwest Passage, they be yeah, the vertigo it's great to have passage. you back. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but so Iran, Iran, uh, Iran was a was a very critical location during this conflict with Russia, which later became to came to be known as the Great Game or the Tournament of Shadows. Uh, <laughs> basically, the best named event ever. Yeah, the um, great game was I had it on PC, but you could also get it on Amiga and Tandy. <laughs> it's good to be back, guys. Yeah. It's good to be <laughs> back. Christ. But uh he is already shaking off the rust. He's in full form. <laughs> if, if my he... jokes were actually good while I was not on the show. Now that I'm back, I'm a horrible comedian again. <laughs> if the eastern border of Iran uh is it shares it with Afghanistan and then Afghanistan is to the northwest of 
what was then the the Indian territory. It's now Pakistan. But um, so Afghanistan was a hugely uh, it was basically one of the major cross crossroads in these sort of proxy wars that were fought between England, the British Empire, and Russia. Um, said Afghanistan, or did you mean Afghanistan or Iran? I did mean Afghanistan. Okay. Um, but as that sort of radiated outward further north and further east into Central Asia, it also radiated further west into Iran, necessitating a lot of uh, British involvement there. Uh, resulting in finally, I, I believe it was 1921, there was a coup in Iran yeah. uh, affected by the British government that um, uh, placed uh, placed it basically under English control. But the reason uh, wasn't that, that the Shah the Shah Riza? <laughs> yeah, but there's actually a more there's an interesting story better known for his rap career though. <laughs> There's a there's an interesting story leading up to why it was so important to control Iran, and especially in light of uh, the First World War, which we talked about on last week's episode. And so for the story of oil in Iran, I'm just going to hand it over to Gene. So around, uh, I think it's 1900, a uh, British millionaire, I think he had made most of his money in uh, minerals or in, uh, in mining. Richard um, Branson. Named William Knox Darcy, uh, buys a concession from uh, the Shah of Iran. This is not Riza Pahlavi yet. This is uh, 20 years before him. Um, basically, it's a laughably like uh, you know cheap concession. Basically, it's six hundred percent of profits. It's basically the Halliburton deal. Yeah, he gets uh, a sixty-year concession on. Just a, 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 a tract of Iranian territory about the, bigger than the size of California and Texas combined. Um, whatever he finds or 16% of the profits would go to Iran. Um, so for about uh, five years, he sends a geologist and a team to look for oil. And for about five years, they find nothing. And uh, Darcy is on the brink of bankruptcy. And he calls... His team back says, that's it. There's no more money. Pull up stakes. And in a moment that basically <laughs> shapes world history forever, the <laughs> geologist, whose name was uh, George Costanza. Uh, George Costanza. <laughs> His um, name was Putty. No, I want to say it was George Meyer. Um, <laughs> might be wrong on that one. Uh, <clears throat> he's been doing this for five years, and he just doesn't want to pull up stakes yet. He's an oil man. And he wants to find oil. So he tells his team that the, they can't trust telegrams at this remote of an area, whatever the hell that means. But he can, you know, gets them to work for another two weeks saying that they're waiting for it to be confirmed by post, whatever the hell that means. And yeah, two weeks after he was told to leave, they strike oil on the largest oil reserve ever found at that time. Black gold. Um, Texas tea. Yeah. Uh, Winston Churchill, who at the time is the first Lord of the Admiralty, which I think means he's just head of the Navy. Head of the Navy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he already sees, you know, a, the Britain headed for a world war. It's 1908, I think, at this time, and uh, immediately convinces the British government to uh, buy up a 50% share of uh, the um, oil company, basically, that forms around this strike, which was called the Anglo. Persian Oil Company. 
APOC for short. Known today as Tupac. <laughs> known today as British Petroleum. Uh, it's actually just BP. It's one of those like things that doesn't. It's letters that don't stand for anything anymore. Oh right, like what is uh, it's that? where um, like Blackwater where... is now XE. Yeah, yeah, or K, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken is just KFC. Um, BP is where tweens uh, buy their clothes at Nordstrom. It's brass Plum. <laughs> that no, joke is for no one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll say. yeah like, thank God we have all those tweens that listen to our program. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, but so anyway, uh, you know, the world enthusiasts. goes. Britain goes to war, and uh, the this Allies. Is, this is World War One, by the this way. This is World War One, and uh, as uh, Lord Curzon, who is the British foreign minister at this moment, puts it, uh, the Allies win on a flood of cheap oil that they basically get from Iran. And also the fact that uh, Germany was surrounded and had difficulty obtaining <laughs> natural goods. Um, but this, this. <laughs> Such a buzzkill, Brian. Yeah. 19... Brian, Brian will never get over Germany losing World War One. <laughs> He's always like coming up with excuses. You know, guys, if only. I'm always shouting about it in a beer hall. Um, <laughs> the reason that Who oil, shit? the reason Who that shit? oil they became, the reason that oil became so important at this time was because, uh, in order to power its fleet, Britain had converted uh, its entire naval fleet, and you know the British Navy is storied for centuries at this point, uh, converted its Navy from coal to oil. So this was, um, you know, bitumen, as it was previously called, was becoming more and more important, not just in terms of transport of goods, but definitely in a military sense. So the fact and that it played a huge role in World War One was seen as very important, not just for that war, but going forward in maintaining the British Empire. And Britain has no oil, uh, basically reserves of its own or and none of its empire uh, none of its territories had any oil uh, but at this the, the oil had been discovered in the US uh, Russia had on, on the Caspian Sea um, the Dutch e the Dutch and their East India territory so this was huge for Britain in terms of its ongoing relevance as a world power so in 1921 there's a coup in iran that puts uh, onto the throne this guy shah reza he's not super important because we're going to skip ahead uh, a couple decades um during world war ii I, I iran was still seen as being uh clutch in the world uh trade of oil and the allies should also talk about how uh, reza changed their name from persia to iran you just you just did it. Oh, okay. thank you, Lee. Right. <laughs> they did it. Yeah, they they changed they changed it from the historical term Persia to Iran. Um, but in so in 1940s the in the 1940s the Allies realized that if Germany got a hold of uh, Iranian oil, they would have a much better supply in you know enabling their tanks to fight with the Soviets and on the Western Front as well. And so they. Uh, Overthrew, overthrew the Shah, who was seen as being too friendly to Nazi and Nazis forces, and uh, he abdicated in favor of his son, Shah Reza Pahlavi, who becomes the important Shah in the story going forward. Yeah. We should also explain that even though they had this monarchy, back in 1906, there had been um, sort of a little revolution where they had instituted a democracy in uh, Iran. Um, but the democracy had had little power up until that point, 
And in fact, I think that according to that constitution, the like Senate could actually be made up, um, was made up 50% by the Shah and then the rest was like selected. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then like the, um, the, the Senate didn't even like, wasn't even instituted until like the fifties, I believe. So that's just kind of a little bit of the, the background of how the yeah, government was structured. No, Lee is right about that. Um, the, under, uh, the Shah senior, Riza Pahlavi, um, there was a parliament and there was a Senate. It was mostly ceremonial. Uh, yeah. The uh, Senate, the parliament the Senate was, was like, yeah, the parliament was popular, but like it, it was so Iran basically throughout the first half of the, uh, I guess the, the 20th century was in this sort of perfect harmonious balance of um, its Islamist forces and its secular liberal forces. So like, right. and, and when I say, you know, perfect harmony, meaning like a sort of political paralysis, kind of like the U S has achieved uh, <laughs> today. Um, and by popular, we mean popularly elected, not actually like we love these guys. Yeah. Uh, but so, uh, Pahlavi was basically was able to rule very easily, um, and in terms of a, as a dictator, he was very effective uh, from the British from the British standpoint. Um, and but I, yeah, how was he capable of being so effective? I mean, not just in terms of this uh, political paralysis that was in, in place, but to what degree was he being supported by foreign powers? Um. Well, with, with Pahlavi, uh, historically, I get the Shahs that preceded him were basically just uh, just had a very cushy relationship with um, the British government because they would just give away uh, concessions. Like uh, before they discovered oil, Iran was purely a tobacco exporting country. And the uh, previous Shah basically passed a law saying that all tobacco farmers had to sell their tobacco to one, this one British company. Yeah. And, you know, which just meant like they made nothing off of it. And, uh, most of Iran just lived in abject poverty. Yeah. And the um, Shahs would do this kind of shit for like just bullshit reasons. Like basically they would say like, you can have all of our goods and, you know, these they make these huge concessions. If you let me, kind of come to England and get introduced and, you know, blow smoke up my ass. Like, so they were really <laughs> just kind of interested in, um, in, you know, sort of partying and having a good time. Yeah. Being popular. I, I get, basically because of like royalty kickbacks that like the Shah generally enjoyed, uh, the Shah we're talking about right now, uh, Shah Riza senior, um, he became like the largest landowner in Iran. Uh, before he added, or he was the largest landowner in Iran before he was forced to abdicate. Um, so, uh, because the Shah also basically controlled the military, I mean, that kind of combined with his wealth, and uh, despite their misgivings with his relationship with the British, uh, you know, the Iran population just kind of had, they still respected the, uh, the power of the Shah. Like, it still kind of had a somewhat uh, mystic, sort of um you know power like you just didn't really question the the authority of the shah hmm. but um so his son takes over which is just kind of strange because it's like you didn't trust the father but like well we'll just put his son in power um and so his son is 21 years old when he becomes 
basically the king of Iran. They call him they up waited until... senior frogs, and they're like, hey, buddy, you got to get back here. <laughs> yeah, they waited until he could drink to make him king. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's he's at Big Wangs when he finds out that he's the Shah of Iran. Big Wangs. <laughs> Big Wangs. He's at that clown room in Southern California. <laughs> Jumbo's clown room. Yeah, he's at Jumbo's. <laughs> Great date place, by the way. <laughs> uh so uh he's 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 a young man and he's a young man why was he's he selected not... by these western powers or, or the I, allies yeah I, and i would have to guess that the british just thought like he's going to be more because Push here's over. the thing uh his father even though he was you know still britain's man he was starting to listen to this mobilization. He was starting to listen to like the later beatles records and yeah, <laughs> yeah he was shaping his, his thinking He's uh, starting thing, to listen to Marin. <laughs> one thing we kind of glossed over here a little bit is is that basically from uh, like throughout uh, Riza Pahlavi's reign, um, a very strong uh, national descent is turning towards uh, Iran's deal with the British. Um, the sixteen percent prop like kickback that Iran gets is just laughable. Um, uh, I think it was like in nineteen. Let me. I'm going to pull this back up right now. 33. And you're going to love it. Okay, like in 1947, uh, Britain made about 40 billion, uh, made a profit of 40 billion pounds, which is 112 million, about 112 million dollars. Iran got pounds. You're really fat. Iran gets just 7 billion of that, of that 40 billion. I mean, they're just getting nothing. And to what, Uh, sorry, to, to what extent, um, is the, politically engaged population of Iran aware of how much of uh, of the old Scroogey they're getting in this deal? Uh, yeah, the person who's instrumental in kind of articulating this is uh, Mohammed Mossadegh, who basically was sort of in and out of parliament, um, I think since like the late 1920s. Uh, he actually, when the Riza Shah was, in, when Riza uh, Pahlavi was inst- right before he was installed as Shah. He tried to convince him to be prime minister and to not be a Shah and to like try to move, you know, Iran toward more of a democracy. And you know, mm-hmm. he failed to convince him of this, obviously. And yeah. uh, Mossadegh went into basically seclusion in Europe because he just thought, you know, um, Iran wasn't ready for democracy. But basically, he thought that uh, Iranian. That Iran, Iran, sorry, nationalizing their oil. Let's just was, pronounce it every way we possibly can. Yeah. <laughs> Iran, Iran, Iran. But he was basically the big voice behind that. Uh, the idea of nationalization of the oil was key to Iran's future as not just a democracy, but just as a self-determined nation uh, and freeing exactly. itself from what he saw as uh, British colonialism. Um yeah, and Mossadegh was ironically like one of the I think he was like the first uh Iranian leader that was, you know, trained as a, a lawyer uh in Europe. So, you know, although he was, you know, such a, a nationalist figure in Iran, he was sort of trained in in the the ways of uh, you know, European culture, law and and democracy. And as we all know, um America, there's nothing that America hates more than democracy. So uh, that kind of sets the stage for this. Yeah, Lee's, Lee's right. He was the first 
Iranian to get his PhD in law at a European university. He's just like exceptionally educated. Spoke more. It was in languages. Sharia law, but you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But <clears throat> what is he doing in the 1940s in order to, you know, promote this idea that um, Iran needs to renegotiate this deal or, you know, talking to the Shah in order to try to improve relations? Right. So, um, Early in the 1940s, his he is in the minority. Like eventually, he forms this party called the National Front, which was basically a liberal, secular ideology that promoted Iranian uh, nationalization of, the, of their oil. Um, but he's a minority voice. Uh, but he does start kind of foster this thinking that hey, we should be getting a better deal from the British and. Uh, um, Pahlavi knows this and like the sentiment is getting so strong that uh, basically all of Britain's kind of guys uh, in the Iranian government are telling Britain like we you cannot like the people are not going to accept this deal anymore. Like the population is starting to become aware of how much they're getting the shaft. Uh, the conditions at the Abaddon refinery, which was like, you know, the largest uh, British refinery in Iran. Uh, the, the working conditions there were just horrid. And it was like just a classical sort of colonial paradigm. British executives ate in really fancy restaurants, being waited on by Iranian waiters, uh, living in mansions with well-manicured lawns, while uh, the Iranian workers are basically working in the turn-of-the-century version of Foxconn. Right. They, um, and they did a uh, – NPR did a This American Life about it, but it turns out that uh, there was a bunch of bullshit in there, so they had to retract their statements. Yeah, and then nobody cared because they just loved their oil anyway. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, now, you mentioned this um... – really? I thought it was okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm, just Im- I'm just imagining like a bunch of just like yuppies just like holding gobs of oil in their hands <laughs> like iPhones. <laughs> like, dude, I got the new oil. <laughs> it's the oil 4S. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's good to be back, folks. <laughs> now, Gene, off uh, before we started recording this episode, you and I were talking about this uh, this issue and the British – the British, in in living this very disparate lifestyle from the 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 impoverished Iranians who were performing all the work at the uh, at the refinery, they sort of took a a typical British imperialist view towards what the Iranians should you know put up with, so to speak. Right. They saw them like they saw every other third world uh, territory they owned, which was, this was a lower people, um, you know, they should be happy with, like, they had this very sort of, like, paternal, patrician sense that, like, what they had brought to Iran um, was good for Iran, and that, like, hey, here's some some peasants who, you know, had, had no jobs or no industry before us, and now we're here and we're giving them that, and they should be happy with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the truth is that that it would have taken you know Iran a lot longer to tap into that oil, or they might never have uh, tapped into that oil if the you know the Brits hadn't come in and, and done that. And the you know the Brits were always rubbing that in their face, and also rubbing in their face the fact that the original House of Cards uh, is so much better than the new one. <laughs> yeah, I think you're thinking uh, of the House of Sand and Fog. 
Uh, yes. I think I'm thinking of them breaking the fourth wall a lot. Yeah, you're thinking of the Saudi Arabian House of Saud. <laughs> okay. Uh, now I'm thinking of House of the Rising Sun. Now, Gene, leading up to this, we finally come into a period that is the nationalization crisis. And this involves Mossadegh rising to the premiership of Iran, which happens in 1951, correct? Yes. Yeah, it happens like a month after the um after they passed the nationalization, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I just want to like in the interim um for decades Britain is getting overtures from its own people in Iran saying like you have to renegotiate these terms. The people are just not going to accept it and every yeah. time Britain would finally come around to the thinking, they were always like they had missed the boat basically on negotiating better terms like at first uh you know the orions were calling for like hey could we get some training in you know low-level managerial positions just by you know better working conditions can we get some training in how to revolt against england (laughs) yeah and uh and a bigger advance on the royalties and britain was just like no absolutely not you get nothing and then they would be like okay well we'll consider that and then at this time uh saudi arabia had just negotiated a 50 50 split with the uh, U.S. oil company that was um, it wasn't it like uh, drilling all their oil, which was uh, Ar- Aramco. Aramco. Um, they got a fifty-fifty split, so now Iran's like, "Well, now we want a fifty-fifty split." And Britain says, "No fucking way! You're out of your fucking mind. We'll never give you that." Um, even the United <laughs> States, and Truman and his cabinet are pressuring Britain to yeah. accept a fifty-fifty deal, saying like, "We are moving," like because they were worried that if they didn't. Um, Iran was going to fall to uh, so the communists, the communists, the, two, the two-day um, uh, political faction, which was a very yeah, small this... Soviet-backed faction. Right. And uh, Churchill was pissed off at Truman because he was saying, "You know, we're backing you in Korea, so you know, you better back us up uh, in Iran." Yeah, the United States is in a very tough position at this time because they keep. They're, they're all advocating to the British to give them, give Iran somewhat what it wants, and they're just not listening. Um, I, Brian, maybe you can kind of speak to this, but like, you know, Britain was kind of claiming that if they gave, just, you know, even slightly more money to Iran, they would go bankrupt. Like they, you know, tried to proclaim them or pass themselves off as this marginally profitable company, but, uh, if the they US... only make 500% profit, they're going to go <laughs> yeah. out of business. Yeah. Um, but like, I mean, England, like basically, I don't know, is this like, this might be like their number one source of revenue at this point. Like it's not so much a comp, you know, I think that's the problem is that Truman is seeing like, Hey, here's a insanely profitable company. What, what's the big deal splitting with it? Yeah. But you know, Britain is basically bankrupt from world yeah, war two. Uh, world war two was devastating to, uh, the, the British Isles because, uh, not only were they, um, you know, not only did the homeland suffer from bombing, um, but uh, Britain basically exhausted all of its money uh, in fighting the war um, to, to, to the point that um, like they borrowed heavily from the United States and only paid off those loans a couple years ago. Yeah, it's um, so it was an exchange for the fact that we borrowed their language. <laughs> Uh, it, it was in exchange for the fact that we borrowed their television programming. Um, <laughs> but, Up but, top. But uh, no, the, like 
One thing that's uh, that's interesting to understand about England at the, during this period is that like it's still suffering from food rationing and rationing of other goods like nylons and rubbers and stuff because the war was greatly like, impacted. Sorry, which is why they had that huge population. Yeah, because they didn't have enough rubbers. <laughs> oh, you fucking guys! And so during this pe- during this period of time, um, Winston Churchill, who uh, was prime minister during World War II and then kind of ducked out for a bit, uh, but then was reelected to the premiership in um, 1950. His whole his whole mission in in life was to be anti-communist as well as to keep the british empire together and i think his main mission was just to coin catchy quotes yeah so good at that that's probably have all babies look like him (laughs) (laughs) um but but uh you know following the war britain's position in administrating its remaining colonies started to fall apart in a lot of places if you look at uh the situation in india obviously that fell apart um towards the end of the 40s and then in places like nigeria and uh kenya they you know had started to affect extreme repression of the local populations because kenya dig it because they had uh you know these populations had basically helped them fight the war and were looking for their own independence and when britain wouldn't concede that to them they fought back um and maintaining the sources of income that uh england or britain had at that time was a paramount cause of churchill's second premiership and their only income was basically oil in James Bond movies. So uh, they really had to hold that oil. And James Bond wasn't going to come around for another decade or so. So Yeah, he was just a book at that point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> they were getting ready for it. <laughs> you know, even well, Churchill really Tr- 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 was so foresighted. He was like, we must we must breed attractive young men. Yes, he was so Frederick foresighted. <laughs> I'm going to steal my own joke from the first episode. Shit. All right. Sorry, Gene. Uh, even the who the prime minister between um, Churchill's Atlee. stints, Atlee, even he thought that they had to, you know, negotiate better terms with Iran. And, and uh, Atlee is not my Twitter handle. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Lee. Oh, he no. he was he was resisting uh, overtures from his own uh own government to or i guess people in his own government to invade iran iran is basically talking invasion at this point um five years earlier there had there had been a strike at the abaddon refinery and uh britain basically responded by cutting wages and then parking warships on the coast um just like hormuz yeah the, the classical colonial flexing the napoleon whiff of grape shot um so uh, the U.S. is like in a really awkward position here because they respect, uh, you know, Iran's ideology at this point. Yes, they should be able to, you know, do what they see fit with their own resources. Uh, not to mention the fact that Iranians greatly re- respected uh, America was kind of like a model to them at this point. And, um, you know, like they or at least they knew how to flatter them the right way, especially yeah. Mossadegh. So, you know, Truman, uh, when uh when the Shah visited him, um, 
sometime, I think it was like in 49 or 50, he, you know, he went on this tour of the U.S. and he basically told the U.S. like, I, you know, I cannot keep this uh, resistance down much longer. I, I need a stronger military. And he basically asked for military aid um, from Truman. And Truman basically told him, like, you know, Chiang Kai-shek in China had the stronger military and it didn't help him. You know, you have to have the support of your people and you're only going to get that by, um, you know, social reform. So he just urged the Shah to basically, you know, create better social conditions for his people. Um, so, uh, so, anyway, so basically the Truman, the Truman administration's perspective on the entire situation in Iran was, uh, it's fixable if the Iranians, uh, give concessions to the people because then, you know, we'll still, there'll still be a pretty good deal in getting oil to Western powers from Iran. Uh, and there won't be an overthrow of this, uh, you know, military dictator who is friendly to those same Western powers and not friendly to communists. Yeah. I mean, ironically, I would say uh, Truman was actually more afraid of uh, ironically. Okay. No, ironically, <laughs> Truman was more worried about uh, Britain here in terms of military action uh, than he was with Iran or, you know, them falling to the Russians because it, Britain was having such a hard, they were pitching such a hard line on this thing. You know, it's like if they couldn't get um, Iran to just accept the shitty terms, um, they were going to invade uh, and occupy Iran. And this is something that, you know, Truman thought would just start, you know, another would just start another war uh, between Britain and Russia that would just obviously repercuss throughout the world. Now, that uh, bad for Iran, but good for having a story to tell uh <laughs> Dwight Eisenhower was elected in 1950 and once he took office in 1951 and a new administration moved into the White House and started to control things uh the perspective on the Iran situation changed right and yeah. uh this was super fortunate for Britain because yeah they just could not get any support from the US under Truman um and uh, with Eisenhower now in office and uh, noting that he and his cabinet were very sensitive to uh, what they saw as any communist threat, particularly right. the Dulles brothers who, between them, ran the State Department and the CIA. John for, and for more, Alan Dulles. For more information on the Dulles brothers, see every single episode we've ever done. <laughs> yeah. For more information on the Dulles brothers, go talk to Oliver Stone. <laughs> yeah, the Dulles brothers were basically these uh, elite brothers who um, had uh, been around at the beginning, uh, the the pre-CIA um, OSS during World War II, and eventually yeah. they were. Bankers too, so they had yeah, shit left to left left business uh, for uh, service in the federal government with uh, you know roles in the CIA and the State Department that helped shape a lot yeah. of American foreign policy going forward. Uh, yeah, John was sex state, and uh, uh, Alan was uh, head of the CIA. Also, a big James Bond fan. Yeah, and if you want, you want to hear another. Uh, I guess it's basically another version of this entire story. Go back and listen to our episode about the uh, coup in Guatemala because yeah. it's basically the same thing. But, it's like uh, the spiritual sequel to this coup. But This is basically the dry run for Guatemala. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
so with the Dulles brothers and uh, Eisenhower uh, operating things in Washington, how, how what was the change towards England and English policy with Iran? Well, uh, you know, Britain, Britain changes tax now um, with uh, the presidential cabinet instead of because before their major appeal was, <clears throat> oh, you know, we made this we had this contract with, you know, a now defunct government in Iran, you know, 50 years ago, and they're not honoring the contract. Uh, and Britain had numerous times tried taking this case to the international, uh, international court and to the UN. And I'm, I'm know, sorry, both... I think, uh, I think we might've missed the part where they stopped honoring the agreement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, 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 the British or the Iranians, the Iranian government. Yeah. Um, Mossadegh, the... Mossadegh became prime minister. Yeah, okay. Mossadegh became prime minister. Uh, and basically, well, when he was nominated prime minister, he made a condition of his nomination, the nationalization of British oil. So when he takes over as prime minister, um, the refineries close. Britain pulls out um, uh, Mossadegh. He basically ejects all British diplomats. Um, so... You know, he is at the height of his popularity, but Brit- uh, Iran is about to enter like the nadir yeah. of their living conditions and poverty because, I mean, as shitty as their conditions were, um, they were still enjoying, you know, billions of dollars in revenue. And that drops to about zero uh, when Mo, Mo Sadiq um, is prime minister. Um, so even though he had pulled off the like very admirable feat of consolidating power between uh, the secular liberals uh, the Communist Party and uh, the uh, Islamic Islamic fashion, uh, sorry, faction. Um, you know, he's testing that popularity right now uh, with his uh, hard line against Britain. Um, so now Britain is going to the United States, and instead of arguing the old, you know, we need this money, uh, they basically appeal to. Um, the Red their, Scare. Uh, the, yeah, they basically appeal to the Red Scare, saying, hey, we're worried that if this guy Mossadegh stays in power, he's going to fall to, you know, he's going to, you know, give a run up to the communists. And Now, they... to what degree, in selling that story to Eisenhower, to what degree did the British di- diplomatic arm actually believe that was true? Uh, they probably knew it wasn't true at all. Yeah. I, they, 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 what I'm, I was trying to prompt you to say they're lying. They're lying. Yeah, they're they're basically full of shit. Um, if anything, it's unclear if the Americans even believed it either, or if they just used it as a pretense. I think that there there was some documentation has has surfaced in in recent years, which basically said, yeah, we knew it was horseshit too, but we needed a good excuse. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to that. But um, yeah, uh, I would say the Dulles brothers were probably maybe legit worried about you know the communist dominoes that JFK would later refer to. Um, but uh, if anything, Mossadegh was going to was an insurance against, um, you know, Iran becoming a communist state. He saw the Russians basically as a slightly lesser evil against uh, the Brits. Um, uh, it's it, slightly it, lesser evil than the bird that is going fucking nuts in the background. It, what on, on my end or yeah. your end? Yeah. What is that? Oh, here. Let the... me. Start. Let me. Cl- I'll close the window. Hold on. So, Gene. At this point, we have uh, Mossadegh as prime minister, and the British have sort of scare fear mongered with the Americans that his uh, 
his actions will result in communist takeover of Iran. But you were in the middle of saying that that probably wouldn't happen because Mossadegh could resist some sort of Soviet takeover. Yeah, he was a check. He was probably more of a check against communism than anything. Uh, he, he was so... Because he knew that if, the, if that uh, Iran, you know, turned to the Soviets, it would be the same relationship that he had with Britain. Iran would not be able to nationalize its oil, he, he, and uh, he just refused to become a pawn in what he saw as just an East-West, you know, capitalist-communist game. Mm-hmm. Um, so when this gets pitched to Eisenhower, he's very, he's resistant to this at first. Um, and yeah, he, he basically says, "Hold on." <laughs> plays a round of golf and then says, yeah, let's do it. But uh, don't document any of it. That was, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, he tells the Dulles brothers that he doesn't want uh, any written reports on this. He only wants to receive oral reports. How Um, did Eisenhower get elected to the uh, presidency if he didn't know how to read? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) How did R. Kelly write a book even though he didn't know how to read? (laughs) So uh, if so, he's a check uh, to Soviet encroachment. However, the Americans de- what what do the Americans decide to do in light of this news coming from the British diplomatic corps? Uh, they decide to engineer a coup uh, to overthrow Mossadegh um, and put a handpicked, uh, basically. Iranian general, handpicked by the British, Iranian general um, in charge of picked organically raised. <laughs> Somebody Former was... Nazi supporter. Farm to table. Sorry, I was just having a little coffee sip while you guys wasted my fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> so this General Zahedi is decided upon as uh, the, the, the new guy they want to go to. Yeah, and he was he was a Nazi, by the way. Man in charge. Um, so where do we want to go next with this? Uh, so I, I don't think that's how you pronounce his name. La, 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 la. So, <laughs> so at this at this point, the, the the American CIA gets involved, and one thing to say about this is that as opposed to the British CIA, known as the MI six. <laughs> yeah, uh, one thing to say about this is that um, as we noted earlier, the Truman pr- uh, presidency was hesitant to get involved in any yeah. sort of uh paramilitary or uh operations abroad although they they did support it in terms of like uh, operation gladio and other and the um greek uh greek junta um yeah. the... basically they were going by the truman doctrine which was to not commit war crimes <laughs> well aside from those atomic bombs they dropped yeah. um Sure. The the tr- Truman's policy, his written policy for the CIA in approving the CIA as an organization, involved the explicit statement that the CIA would not go go about uh, implementing regime change. And but, Robert De Niro was not allowed to make a movie about it. Oh God, is that movie interminable? Um, but when Eisenhower comes to power, he kind of reverses on this. And Kinzer, this author who um, wrote uh, wrote a lot about this topic, uh, and yeah, he created this thing called the Kinzer scale, which basically shows like how supportive you are or are not of uh, coups in other countries. Yeah, it just it's just it's, weirdly it's his penis in various stages of erection. <laughs> um, but uh, but and I, he fucked his lab assistant. <laughs> but Eisenhower. 
Uh, Kinzer's theory on why Eisenhower wanted to support military overthrow in Iran and elsewhere was that Eisenhower, who had, you know, led these troops through World War II and had seen things as horrific as the Holocaust, uh, saw the covert paramilitary paramilitary supports of foreign coups as a in effort to avoid war this was like a peaceful way of bringing about uh situations that were agreeable for the most amount of people uh this is kinzer's view i don't know if exactly i share it but i thought it was an interesting perspective on why he would sign off on something like this uh because an operation of this magnitude has to get authorization from the top uh, which would yeah. mean eisenhower at this time operation and, ajax as it was known yeah, so operation ajax is agreed to in motorcycle city outside uh <laughs> operation ajax is approved in 1953 and they handpick this guy to lead the operation gene why don't you tell us a little bit about kermit roosevelt jr <laughs> yes kermit? okay can we just applaud his name <laughs> Kermit D. Roosevelt. <laughs> uh, makes his way into Iran. It's not clear what his uh, stated purpose for being there was. He was a uh, roving reporter. He was a banjo player. <laughs> Who just had a story to tell. <laughs> um, he, uh, he goes into Iran under the assumed name of James Lockridge, uh, which oh, he almost been... gives a... What? Sorry. Fuck, I have a banana in my mouth. <laughs> and you're trying to talk while you I know, have a cock but, in your mouth? No, no, no. Kermit, Kermit Roosevelt Jr. is the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, yes. 26 presidents strange. of these United fucking states. Yeah, so, sorry. So, anyway, uh, Kermit Roosevelt is seen at the Turkish embassy a lot um, playing tennis. It's his favorite pastime. And every oh, time he would miss right. a shot, he would say to himself, Oh, Roosevelt! And the... You know, his associates who knew him as James Lockridge wondered why he would say that. And he covered by saying that he hated Franklin Delano Roosevelt so much that uh, it was a derogatory term to him. So right. saying, oh, Roosevelt was basically like, oh, fuck for him. Yeah, this yeah, is he said, <laughs> this is eight years after Roosevelt has died. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was basically saying, like, since I am Teddy Roosevelt's uh, grandson, I hate the fact that. Um, my uh, uncle-in-law, whatever he would be, uh, fucked up our name. But I'm not Kermit Roosevelt Jr. <laughs> it's kind of like in Face Off when John Travolta, John Travolta's character is now in Nicolas Cage's face, and he goes first goes to prison, and yes. his brother is immediately sus suspicious that he doesn't seem like himself, <laughs> and he has to prove that he knows things about his brother to prove that he is in fact Nicolas Cage. Because, you know, um, what if there's this technology where you can switch faces with people? It's uh, it's kind of like how in Face Off, whenever they cut to the long shot in an action scene, you can clearly see that the stuntmen are all Chinese people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that John Woo just took from his uh, his uh, production company family. in China. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> his family. <laughs> what? So anyway, Kermit Roosevelt, a.k.a. James Long. John Woo. James Lockridge, sorry, uh, starts uh, running rehearsals on a coup. But, I mean, I, I guess what makes this sort of coup revolutionary. Running intended. rehearsals. Uh, All right, people, let's take it from the top. 
uh, is that this is that he is going to they're going to engineer uh, Iran's own people uh, yes. to overthrow their own democratically elected leader uh, rather than what would have been the British tact, which would have been just to send a bunch of uh, foreign white overlords in to kill a bunch of people and install their puppet government. Um, the puppet gov- they wanted a puppet government, which is why they sent in Kermit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're going to set up a puppet government and it's hand-picked. <laughs> now, Gene, why did they decide to go this route? In your research, were you able to find out if they were basing this on any other sort of orchestrated coups? Or was this sort of improvised from the get-go? He said it was rehearsed. So I don't think it was improvised. Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> Can I get a suggestion I... for a bad joke? Thank you. <laughs> Uh, people in the CIA and State Department, I think they just, like, here's the thing, it's like, whereas Britain just had no clue uh, as to the Iranian population's thinking, uh, or like, to their culture, like, I mean, r- seriously, like, uh, British emissaries to um, Iran, or like, their imba- like sort of ambassadors, or pe- anyone that was like in, in charge of any kind of foreign office analysis of the Middle East, would oftentimes have zero experience in the Middle East. Like some of yeah. them had never even been to Iran. Like it was just another Like they had read of, the Arabian Nights. Basically. Yeah. None of them had ever even post. seen Argo or Persepolis. Yeah. Like not only had they not read the comic Persepolis, they hadn't even seen the movie. Right. It was they would maybe watch the trailer for Argo and think, all right, all right, I got it, I got it. <laughs> they um, would think this movie looks terrible. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. Oh, it's so bad. Uh, uh so anyway, Kurt they they're they're planning this based on it seems whatever the fuck they can come up with yeah and ironically you know the american intelligence apparatus kind of learned their the tricks of the trade from you know uh the from mi6 during world war 2 and we were the office of strategic services oss which you know dulles uh, obviously served in um while he was in uh, europe fucking women and killing people which is basically what spies do uh, so anyway, the CIA, uh, starts unfurling this program that, you know, worked to perfection in, uh, a couple years later in Guatemala. Um, they start just buying people off, uh, yeah. people, people in positions of, uh, of, uh, like sort of persuasive power in Iran. They started buying off, uh, mullahs. Am I pronouncing that right? Mullah. Mullah. A mullah. Sorry. <laughs> they mullahs, were paying mullah um, to mullahs. Yeah. Uh, radio, radio Tehran, which was you know the largest, which was basically like the BBC of uh, yeah. Iran. Um, it was like the Al Jazeera of the Arab world. Yes, <laughs> Muslim clerics uh, to basically start you know railing against Mossadegh, saying like, look at the conditions he's uh, you know plummeted us into. Um, the ayat. Ayatollah at the time, I mean, there were numerous Ayatollahs, but like the highest, sort of like the most respected Ayatollah, who was Ayatollah Kashani, who at one point um, was united with uh, Mossadegh um, in his, nat, you know, in his quest for nationalism, was starting to turn against him because, you know, they were together when Mossadegh was just in the parliament, but now that he was the premier, Kashani saw him as a guy who wasn't doing anything to turn Islam, uh, sorry, to turn Iran into what he shot, thought should be a Muslim state. Right. Uh, so he starts turning against, turning him and turning him and his followers against Mossadegh, uh, 
uh, for his secular policies. Mm. He had um, a lot of followers because he was one of the first Ayatollahs on Twitter. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so then basically here is, uh, okay. Oh, sorry. I should, uh, Mossadegh has like what some see as a misstep, uh, that sets him up for a coup. Um, he, uh, they're voting. The Shah puts, you know, forces basically the Majlis, who is the parliament, to vote on. Uh, wait, I'm sorry, I'm getting this wrong. Uh, there's a referendum sus- on whether. What? Uh, he suspends the vote, right? Because yeah. there are some people that were out of the country. Uh, yeah, there's people out of the. Right. The, the, some kind of referendum comes up in Iran, and uh, basically, I, I guess the Brits have bribed enough of their guys who are still in parliament. Uh, enough guys on Mossadegh's side are out of the country. So what he does is he dissolves, temporarily dissolves parliament. Right. Um, and he imprisons a lot of his, like, uh, opponents. So, yeah. like, you know, you know, Mossadegh has, you know, he has this, this reputation as a martyr and a hero. And I definitely feel like he's the, the most heroic, democratic, um, and for the people, um, individual of this, this whole affair. But, you know, what kind of gets erased from the popular uh, memory is that he did pull a bunch of shady shit, like in the, the last hours here to sort of preserve power. But, yeah. No, um, I mean, you're right. Cause up until this time, I mean, like, you know, even, even though he may have known that like the British and U.S. were, or at least the British were, you know, paying off, you know, the media to speak against him, he refused to, you know, stamp out what he saw as free speech or the freedom of press. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, he was uh, like, just refused to kind of budge on, you know, democracy and following the letter of the law. But yeah, I mean, I mean, this happens, he dissolves parliament and then he holds a vote, uh, deciding whether, you know, parliament should be temporarily dissolved. And yeah. the election is, this is like a thing where it's like, we're not sure if, he kind of rigged it, or maybe if Americans kind of the Americans kind of helped make it look like it was rigged, because the vote comes back ninety nine percent in favor of Mossadegh, <laughs> yeah. um, and the ballots instead of having a yes or no on the same ballot, it was one ballot was yes and one ballot was marked no. So it was easy the, to throw away. The it was no easy votes. to throw away the no votes. Um, so this is just a huge blow against Mossadegh. Uh, and Kermit Roosevelt kind of springs on this. He organizes uh, a, a protest to basically several protests, actually yeah, several protests to converge uh, on Tehran. And you know he has to pay off uh, people to organize it. But then you know, yeah, uh, real like people who are actually like you know actual like uh citizens sympathetic to the cause these guys are pretending to care for join in it's it's genius it's kind of like a improv everywhere coup like basically he goes (laughs) to the basically he pays off a bunch of people to like all right pretend that you are communist supporters of mossadegh and then the real and they would go round up the real communists and then they would start this protest and then you know yeah, they would pay off, and then you pay off another group, and then he would basically make them fight each other. It was fucking yeah. genius. Well, we're gonna get that's actually the, the, the part two of the. Game. Oh, okay. Sorry, um, I'm getting it. Yeah. So uh, at this, uh, at the same time, uh, Roosevelt is trying to get the Shah to sign these things called firmams, which uh, would basically remove letters for your mother. Yes, re- remove Mossadegh from power uh, on grounds that he broke the law by dissolving parliament and then naming his successor, General Zahidi. 
uh, Pahlavi will not do, he refuses to do this because Mossadegh he still sees is just way too popular. And if he does this, it's going to be clear that he's doing it at the behest of, you know, the British and the people will turn against him. Um, he is just not as strong willed as his, you know, wonderfully dictatorial father. He's kind of a wuss. Um, so, but finally, like, he just keeps refusing to sign them. Finally, Roosevelt gets so him to does, sign. Does does Roosevelt just finally walk up to him and ask, "Do you even lift?" Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is funny. They actually—it took like a couple weeks to convince the Shah to sign them, and one of the people they sent in was Norman Schwarzkopf Sr. Oh, yes. of uh, Lindbergh baby kidnapping of Lindbergh exactly. baby kidnapping fame, father of Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf of uh, <laughs> Iraq War fame. Um, Iraq and even won. he like, and yeah, he notes that like the Shah is just so paranoid at this point and just terrified to do anything. But uh, finally, he's spoken they... like some really good Indica. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> finally, they bribe him. That... Uh, go ahead, Lee. That it's funny that you mentioned like, do you even lift? Because like a lot of the people that he that he paid to kind of yeah, take wrestlers, part these bodybuilders. These, including... Yeah, there are these guys that are hanging out at gyms in Tehran, including the Iron Sheik was actually a bodyguard. The yeah, former really? WWF wrestler Iron Sheik and insane <laughs> person on Twitter was one of the Shah's bodyguards <laughs> at one time. Uh, so anyway, finally he signed the papers after a ton of bribes, and he go and Roosevelt convinces him that the coup is going to work, and then he goes into hiding. Um, so he flies to Baghdad, right? Yeah, he flies to Baghdad. Uh, so then. Uh, What's considered a, 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 an important step in the coup here is they have to arrest the general, the leader of the Imperial Guard who was loyal to uh, the nationalist cause. Um, so uh, Roosevelt dispatches, um, you know, one of the royal kind, you know, sympathetic to the British U.S. causes, uh, a guy named uh, I think it's Nasiri. Uh, or no, sorry, Riahi, to go and arrest. Um, no, I'm getting it wrong. Sorry, Nasiri goes to arrest Riahi. I'm sorry, I'm getting these fucking names wrong. Goes to arrest the uh, leader of the Imperial Guard, but Mossadegh gets word that a coup is about to happen. He warns uh, Riahi. Riahi gets out of there, goes to organize his troops. Um, the guy who's supposed to go arrest Riahi... Uh, goes to where he thinks he's going to go, which I forget where that was, and uh, it he turns out he's already around his troop, right? and he gets arrested instead. Mm-hmm. Um, the, riot, the, uh, the, the riots that uh, Roosevelt organized are kind of quickly repressed, and, uh, you know, Mossadegh's popularity surges now because mm. word gets out that he was, um, you know, going to be the subject of a coup, but he resists it, uh, and, you know, and this makes him more popular now. Um, yeah, and it looks like the coup is going to fail. And it so, looks like the coup is going to fail. The Shah is now terrified. He flies to Baghdad. Oh, and then now to he Italy. To Baghdad? Yeah, I'm sorry. He goes he to Iraq his... and then Italy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he just thinks he's done for. Um, he'll never be able to go back there. Uh, and he's... he left all of his best games back there. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> And this is in the time of cartridges. All this, like, you can't just go buy new games. All of his saves are on the are on the cartridges. So, um, 
So now Washington tells Roosevelt, get the fuck out of there. It's over. Um, and much like a plucky geologist who insisted on staying behind. <laughs> that right. oil, he insists on staying. Roosevelt insists on staying. Uh, I just wanted to make one little side note. The night before the, the coup, the, the first attempted coup, which they thought was going to be a success after they got the signatures from the Shah, Kermit Roosevelt and all of his CIA lackeys would sing the song Luck Be a Lady from Guys and Dolls. Guys it was and basically dolls. the unofficial theme song of the coup. Um, so anyway, Kermit Roosevelt is literally hung over <laughs> like the day of the coup because he thinks like, it's just going to go great. It doesn't. Um, Washington tells him to pull up stakes. And uh, he says no. He wants one more shot at it. He thinks that he can still pull it off. Uh, almost all of... Almost everyone, all the other Americans have fled, like, for their lives. Like, they're fearful. Kermit Roosevelt is, like, basically by himself. You're, so uh, you're saying, I ran so far away? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> basically takes the guys that he still has, which is uh, basically just Iranian nationals who are still, you know... In the pay. Sympathetic. He yeah, ran so far away. Um, and uh, he basically turns the situation against Mossadegh. He you know, uh, basically disseminates through his media channels that the CIA owns that it was actually a, a, um, a coup that Mo Sadiq had engineered against the Shah, trying to depose the Shah from power, and that's why the Shah had to flee, because he was fearful for his life. Um, he then, again, buys off another... He buys off a uh, communist crowd to... Mm -hmm. or, like, basically members of the Tuda party to, again, march through the streets... But to be more he buys violent. them off, but then they share all the money equally. Yes. <laughs> uh, he basically pays them to just start marching through the streets, breaking storefront windows, smashing up cars, and basically, uh, you know, instilling, like, and, uh, at the same time to, like, but doing it in the name of Mo Sadiq, like, yeah. chanting his name. Um, so, and then they march on, uh, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is, wherever it is that there's a, a statue of the Shah, and they pull it down. Yeah. Um, and along the way, they're picking up, you know, nationalists and like actual non-bought off nationalists and uh, communist sympathizers. So it's basically uh, if you want to like see a, what this a false, false flag. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, meanwhile, people who are watching this are fucking terrified that their country is descending into violence. Um, so then Roosevelt sends out another uh, um, mob this time, which. Uh, the Ayatollah helps mobilize, which is uh, like a more Islamist one that marches in protest to Mossadegh. Uh, and uh, this time it's led by uh, the general. Uh, like uh, He also buys off a bunch of military commanders that have armies, you know, under them to uh, go off and put down this, you know, um, violent crowd. And uh, it starts this huge riot and... It ends up kind of being laid at the feet of Mossadegh. Uh, you know, the population thinks, well, Mossadegh started all this, and then, you know, like, look what happened. And uh, then he Kermit started Roosevelt, it. <laughs> yeah, he, Roosevelt then fires off his second attempt at the coup. Um, they, uh, he gets uh, Zahidi to um, basically uh, declare himself, because, uh, you know, to declare himself the prime minister. Because Mossadegh broke the law by dissolving parliament. Yeah, um, they, they accused him of uh, treason. Of, right, they accused of, him of 
refusing to acknowledge the Shah's um, initial claims that he should step down. Yes. Uh, and so he's like tortured and thrown in, thrown into prison for, for uh, three years. Yeah, thrown into prison for three years. Confinement. Uh, and then he's allowed to live out the rest of his life under house arrest. The Shah kind of shrewdly uh, decided not to execute Mossadegh because, yes. you know, correctly predicted that that might, that would make him look as a martyr, which would kind of play into his hands. So um, he just put an ankle bracelet on him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, Mossadegh is arrested. Uh, the Shah becomes more powerful than ever. Um, Zahidi, who was basically seen as, uh, you know, the Shah's guy, even he kind of starts to try to like, um, you know. Hey, come on! Don't murder that many people. Yeah, kind of distance himself from the Shah and consolidate his own power. And so the Shah then has him dismissed as the prime minister. Um, and the Shah does too good of a job, basically, um, getting rid of all of his opponents over the span of you know twenty years. Uh, at this time, the famed Savik, I think it's called yeah, the secret police. The secret police of Iran, which is trained by Norman Schwarzkopf. Also, uh, Kirstie Alley's uh, Vulcan character Jesus, in Star Trek I knew that was coming at some point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Still alive, old friend. Savik institutes this reign of terror. Uh, they resort to torture. Um, and uh, basically, with the like, sort of by sanction of the United States, the Shah gets rid of um, all of his... People who are basically just secular political opponents uh, and um, the conditions are just so bad that, I'm sorry, so like in eliminating all of his secular opponents, he gives rise to uh, the religious zealots, uh, which culminate under the rise of the grand Ayatollah Khomeini. Yeah, one of them, Ayatollah Khomeini, who spent a couple years in prison, was then exiled. Uh, he spent By the Shah. Yeah, by the Shah. He spent about 14 years uh, after this point living in Paris, amongst other places, uh, until he returned to Iran in 1979, at which point he was able to organize... A huge uh, anti-Western and anti-Shah movement that over- helped overthrow the Shah and uh, eventually institute the Islamic Revolution of 1979. It was basically the second scariest thing to happen in 1979 uh, after Moonraker. <laughs> Fuck. Um, but uh, this is what, this is a very interesting case of the the classic concept of CIA blowback. It's basically where the term was coined. Yeah, because as we said, uh, or as Gene said, uh, it was the first real attempt at regime change that the CIA ever committed. Um, And Kermit Roosevelt was kind of writing the rules as he went along. Um, And And by writing the rules, you mean breaking the rules. (laughs) But, um, uh, But then it took, you know, a couple decades and all of these effects that had uh, all these consequences that they hadn't foreseen from the initial action of overthrowing Mossadegh eventually turned around and bit the United States in the ass to the point that uh, it's now 2014 and the United States has no uh, Iranian specialists living in its country. So 
in even attempting to go through back channel diplomatic interactions with Iran over its nuclear f- capability or under uh, security and peace in the Middle East. Um, they don't have anyone who knows anything about Iran in a way, in any sort of familiar way that could help facilitate those kinds of discussions. Right. And that's the irony of this whole situation is that, like, you know, we've been labeling Iran as the, uh, you know, access of evil. And like, certainly the the government there is, you know, fucked up to its to its citizens. But, you know, we here in this country, for the most part, forget about all of the shit that we pulled in 53. But they sure as hell don't. Um, and you know, that's kind of what I was joking at 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 the beginning of the show where I said that most people are familiar with, you know, the history of uh, Jesus and Moses more so than they are with uh, the history of their own country within the, Mm -hmm. you know, past 75 years. And, um, um, that's why it's an interesting topic. Yeah. At this point, I would normally ask you guys if you thought this was an inside job, um, but instead, uh, Gene, there was a very important announcement from the CIA that came out in August of last year. Can you tell the listeners what it said? Yes, they admitted finally that they might have had a little to do <laughs> with the regime change in 1953. That, that, like, it was something that they denied for a very long time. Um, and you know what? Because they said that, I'm going to have to say this is not an inside job. Because if the CIA actually admits that they did this, there's some reason why they're making this shut up, shit up and they had nothing to do with this. And it's just a bunch of lies that they themselves planted to make it look like they had overthrown this government so that the, everyone would be afraid of the CIA. So I'm going to have to say not an inside job, but it was an inside job convincing us it was an inside job. Well, from our perspective, I guess it's an outside job. Yes, but from, it's a, from the it's Iranian a hand perspective, job. it's an inside. It is an inside job because their own people were bribed and mobilized to overthrow their own government. Mm-hmm. Um, the the CIA's acknowledgement of uh, its involvement in this is one of the first times that the CIA has ever acknowledged having been uh, involved in any sort of regime change, although. Um, Except for the, it's just because Iran is so cool now, and so they want to be like, yeah, but we were there before it was cool. And Iran in 53, you had to be there. <laughs> it's obviously a geopolitical concession having to do with current world events. But um, Kermit Roosevelt mm-hmm. wrote a book about Session. his uh, – his, his, uh, activities in iran called counter coup um that basically spelled out everything he had he had done um in the uh i believe he published it in the 1970s so any any final words of summation gene about this uh this first go at coups in other countries performed by the american intelligence services i'd like to give a little epilogue for hermit roosevelt i mean who you know, kind of judging by his book, he always seemed, he see, at least died purporting to think that what he did was right and uh, that the coup was right for the world and that his intentions were good. Um, but then, but after that, the uh, coup of Iran, the Dulles brothers wanted him to organize the coup of Guatemala. Um, you know, the funny thing is, is that after that Iranian coup, Roosevelt, not Roosevelt, Eisenhower, you know, 
kind of said like, I, okay, no, nothing more like that. That is the last time we do something like that. That's the last time I want to hear about us doing that. Right. <laughs> and the, but the Dulles brothers were like, oh no, that's, this is exactly what we're doing from now on. Like basically, yeah, as Brian had said, Kermit Roosevelt had written the playbook for regime change. Um, and uh, they wanted him to do it for Guatemala. And he did not want, he refused to, to do it. So it's strange that like, well, he did, you know, find nobility in the endeavor in Iran. He did not want to do it again in Guatemala. Maybe he just doesn't like bananas. I don't know. Well, he yeah. ne- he didn't think that they could top the luck be a lady yeah. uh, song. Yeah, he didn't have a theme song really to like kind of fire yeah. himself. He it. didn't like bananas uh, because he preferred um, take the money and run and sleeper in terms of Woody Allen's earlier work. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I thought we had a ban on Woody Allen jokes on this show. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> no, just jokes about him raping kids. Was Lee here for that when we decided that? What? Was that Mark? Was, was Lee here for that when we decided that or was that Mark? I, I don't know. It's not, it's a soft ban. It's a soft ban. But uh, yes, I want to thank you very much, Gene, for doing all that research. That was a, that was a really interesting topic and I hope that uh, the yeah, listeners thanks, out there Gene. En- Great job. enjoyed learning about our sordid past in uh, the... In Iran. We are literally the only source of anything that has ever covered this in America. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, but if you do want to read more on the subject, you can read uh, <laughs> Stephen Kinzer's All the Shah's Men. If you just want to read about uh, the Iranian coup. Um, and also get just a lot of, like, kind of good condensed history of Iran that really helps kind of backlight the collective psyche of Iranians. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then if you want to get, like, more a kind of like a great overlook of the Dulles brothers and all of their successful coups. You can get his book. I think it's called the brothers. Yeah. The great thing about this episode is we can keep releasing it and just uh, dubbing over Nicaragua. (laughs) (laughs) Greece. Guyana. Um, That is a good point. But uh, if you want to write in about this show, um, we had uh, our last episode about Franz Ferdinand and sort of the situation in the Balkans and Europe, broader Europe uh, that led to World War One. got a lot of very good response. Um, we had some so really said, whenever I'm not on the show, we get like a really good response. Yeah, basically, unless unless you're playing the character of Lee Golden conspiracy expert in a radio drama. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Garrett. It's the part I was born to play, baby. Garrett and Clay wrote in uh, very nice messages about those, and uh, I thank them for it. And then I also I mentioned on Twitter. I'm not sure if I mentioned it on the show last week, but uh, last week's episode was inspired by uh, a fan request for a topic. So if you ever want to request that we do a, a, a topic for the show, it's a long backlog, but we're always open to hearing uh, about subjects that we can cover. You can write to us. Our email address is insidejobscast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us uh, at insidejobscast, or you can always call our hotline 413-225-1963. And if you enjoyed this episode or you have enjoyed any of our episodes, it really There's helps. something wrong with you. We uh, we always appreciate getting a review on iTunes, and we recently had some great reviews from Justin and Chuck on there, who said some very nice things about our podcast. Uh, thank you, Justin and Chuck, and thank you thank to you. everyone who has taken the time to do that in the past. Um, I Did guess... Mark call in um, to say how much the show that he was on sucked? No, he didn't. He kind of gave oh, okay. that up when. Uh, 
when he got started being on the show. Yeah, when he started being on the show. <laughs> um, but uh, thank love you, you, Mark. Thank you guys both for being uh, on this episode today. We will be back in two weeks with a brand new t- topic. Until then, follow the money. I, I I've taken I've taken up my new hobby, by the way, is stomping around my apartment and reciting Shakespeare. Oh yeah. What's your what's yes. uh most on the dock? Oh, uh I've been doing tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps at this petty pace to the last from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. I've been doing a little today is the day we celebrate our Saint Crispin's Day. Um the band of brothers speech. Yeah, uh, and, it's Saint Crispin's Day already. <laughs> yeah.